Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned this as a, um, a, obviously a messianic, uh, is, is full of messianic prophecies from, uh, particularly from 40 and on to the end. Can I, can we clarify that a bit? Because obviously Ezekiel is about the restoration of Jerusalem, the temple, the priesthood, uh, and the Messiah and the, the king. In fact, the prince at the end of, and I think many of your listeners will find this very strange and striking, but you have the sin sacrifice returning. Christians struggle with this a little bit because uh, in, in the Hebrews and Romans, it, it would appear that the, the, the sacrifice system would come to an end. But in fact, it is returning. The sin sacrifice is returning, which is a sacrifice for unintentional sins. In fact, if you look at Ezekiel 45, verse 20, 21, 22, you'll see there that, in fact, the prince, the Messiah, brings a sin offering on behalf of himself and the people. He does. For sins that are committed unintentionally. Naturally, in, in a Jewish model, this makes complete sense. People still will be human, will make mistakes of errors in the Messianic age, but there won't be no, there will be no rebellion in the Messianic age. So we so, see Edna V. Ezekiel 45 sacrifices, sin offerings, the Messiah himself will bring. And why he's bringing it is because of unintentional sins. We see in Isaiah 46, verse 16, 17, that the Messiah is going to have children, a family, sons. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see it there as well. And here we see the world coming to a state of perfection. Now, you mentioned it does refer to the prince, and you said that's in reference to the Messiah. And if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that the, the everlasting kingship, if you like, the kingdom, is through David and Solomon. Is that fair? That's correct. But yes. there, there are some people who say that how can that be the case? Because we know that Solomon's reign came to an end, that there was the division, that there was the exile, that there's no one sitting on the throne at the moment. Therefore, how can it be a prophecy about Solomon? What, how would you answer that? Well, first of all, it's very clear that it is. I mean, that's, that's, that's not open to debate because it says the one who will build this temple in my name. So we know quite clearly it is Solomon. Mm. In fact, the kings that followed, whether it's Rehavam, and you go further on to Yota, Uzio, Yotam, they were all descendants of King Solomon. So, in fact, we, we know that. Um, the reason people are confused about Solomon is that in, in, in Kings, uh, we have this disaster with Solomon in chapter 11. You know, we, I, I don't know about you guys. I'm sure we all love Solomon, you know, but there's an ambiguity of what happens to him because he married women that would bring idolatry mm -hmm. into the temple. But we have very clearly in Chronicles showing that it is Solomon that the line goes through. The promises made very clearly that he will be to me a son, I will be to him a father. Mm. And it's not that he won't make mistakes. Because the text, again, these are not my words, but the text clearly states that if he sins, I will punish him with the rod of men but I will not remove the kingship from him as I did from his predecessor. Now, this, these texts, these promises, just like we have in, in Genesis uh, 49, verse 10, does not mean there would never be an epic where there would be no king. What it's saying mm -hmm. is if there was going to be a king, or all legitimate kings would have to come from this line. So, for instance, there was a, a, a period of Babylonian exile, seven years, obviously was no king, and there was no king during the second temple period. There was, there was no king except that the Maccabees, we just celebrate Hanukkah, but the Maccabees in, who reigned, the, the Maccabean period reigned for about 103 years. Where, the Hushmanian dynasty. Yeah, but they mm. actually in, inappropriately assigned for themselves, not the, the father, 
But as they went on, they assigned for themselves a, a position of, of kingship, which was inappropriate, and therefore they suffered, and there's no one left of their descendants today. But they were Kohanim, they were priests, and they mm-hmm. had no right to the kingship. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So when, when we read in, uh, just returning to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37, which you mentioned, verse 24 and on, it says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and obey my statutes and do them, and uh, then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. My, my, forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. forever. Now, when it talks about David being their prince forever, is it talking about a descendant of, of yes. David or is it? It means that it is a, an heir to the covenant that God made with King David. It doesn't mean that king david will uh, somehow like what do they have in the hindus or were reincarnate he's not going to reincarnation of david what it means is that this individual who is not only a descendant of king david but will sit on the throne of david as a result of the promise that god made to king david and uh, and incidentally what we see there in the text is and and it's important to remember you know, is that all Christians agree that these are messianic passages and this mm-hmm. text is referring to the Messiah. There's, there is no alternative reading of that. Interestingly, it says there that this is clearly talking about the Messiah in the messianic age. It says that in that time, uh, they will have one shepherd and they will follow the mitzvahs of the commandments of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that's so the prince that we read there in, in chapter thirty-seven is a descendant of David through uh, Solomon, as we see in Second Samuel chapter seven, verse twelve, and on. Therefore, when we get to uh, Ezekiel forty-five, as you mentioned, uh, we see the prince offering a, a sin sacrifice. We're definitely talking about the Messiah, the King. Right, that's correct. Okay, so that, I, I suppose that is a, uh, I mean, Christianity, I suppose, goes into damage control when they see that, because in that theology, how does a prince have to make, how does the Messiah have to make a sin sacrifice? In fact, if I go to my, because I'm reading from my New King James, listeners know that I, I read from the New King James uh, Study Bible, the Nelson Study Bible, what I have here in, uh, and this is the note on 44 verse 3, where the, where the prince is introduced. In that uh, study note, it says the prince. The identity of this prince is unknown. The Hebrew term does not always mean a king or a member of, of royalty. It is not the Messiah. Get that right. It is not the Messiah. Since 45 verse 22 indicates that this leader must make a sin offering for himself. What they're doing is... I'm not saying this in a derisive way, but they're, they're work, walking it backwards in physically and spiritually. They're going, I have to end up at this goal. And the goal is it can't, the Messiah, Jesus can't bring sin sacrifice on behalf of himself and others. There is a complete division among commentators of who the prince is. But you, this is perfect because the ones who say this is not the Messiah, which is a very, would be, I mean, who else could this be? We saw there, David, my, my, the, the prince, will be, who, you know, who will lead over them right in 37. That's clearly speaking about the Messiah. If you go back in your commentary, I don't have it in front of me. I'm sure it's going to say that. So what they do is they, they can't have the Jesus bring the sin sacrifice because, after all, Jesus was sinless. The Messiah is sinless. So that's not possible. So, therefore, they have to either reinterpret what it says earlier or just say, we don't really know who it is. But isn't that strange? I mean, here we have from 36 to 47, 
we have 17 times this one individual who's so important is able to go into Aries Temple, no one else is the most prominent individual, and it's not the Messiah? I mean, who really No, it's, it? it's amazing. So, And you're absolutely right when you say, if I go back to uh, 37 uh, and verse 24 and on, if I look at the study notes there in my New King James Study Bible, it says, the title David my servant refers to the Messiah and King who would come from David's exactly. line to save Israel, and it references 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. But when you go a couple of chapters further well this right. can't possibly be him right and but, but at least they're being honest that means they're saying the reason it can't be him is not because the text wasn't su- suggested it can't be him because we're starting off with the postulate that it can- we got to believe in jesus and we have to believe in the we have to believe that jesus was sinless and couldn't possibly bring an animal sacrifice and he was saying the animal sacrificial system really was never efficacious never really wor- worked Hebrews nine twenty two, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Hebrews ten four five six, and so on. So they're working it backwards. Instead of saying, "Okay, let's figure out who this could possibly be," they're not. They're saying we we have to start off with the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins, and he's the final sacrifice for all times. Hebrews ten eighteen, and therefore we have to reinterpret Ezekiel based on Hebrews, which is. So, you know, but the question is, why are there sacrifices returning no matter who it is? I mean, let's just concede everything. Some, it's obvious the prince is the Messiah, but let's say we ignore that. Why would a sin sacrifice be returning in the Messianic age, no matter who you, you let's say we say the prince is the janitor, why would he be bringing a sin sacrifice? And incidentally, you can't say it's a lot of the folks, like Matthew, not Matthew Henry, but I forget the name, a lot of premillennial dispensators say, well, it's a more Schofield, it's a memorial to what happened in the past. But if actually, if you go to the text, You'll see there in 20 through 23 that, in fact, that sin offering was brought for what? For unintentional sins. Sins mm-hmm. that were committed unintentionally. They're not mm-hmm. brought as a memorial to anything. Mm. I mean, this is problematic for, for Christian theology, obviously. But, but if, if we, and, and you mentioned Paul, and Paul mentions that Jesus was born according to the flesh of the line of David. Uh, and if we go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, if we jump into the New Testament, we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, I think it is. No, cha- verse 6, it does tell us that uh, Jesus was born uh, in the line of David and Solomon. So we're, we're winning there, right? I mean, this, is he still in the running? Well, you know, in Matthew opens with the genealogy, and it's very clear in Matthew 1 that it starts with, this is the first verse, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So hmm. Matthew is setting, we don't, by the way, we don't know who wrote Matthew, but whoever wrote it, now it's called Matthew, uh, hmm. is trying to demonstrate that Jesus was eligible to be the Messiah because here's a genealogy. It's a, it's a 41-generation genealogy. It's very problematic. There are, in order to get his genealogy going and to get... 14, 14, 14, names have to be stripped from that genealogy. But setting that aside, only two books in the New Testament, or two writers in the New Testament, claim that Jesus was born a virgin. That's Matthew and Luke. Each of them have a very different plot device to get them born of a virgin in, get him born of a virgin in Bethlehem. But the key point is, if Jesus was born of a virgin, then the genealogy is irrelevant because that irrelevant. genealogy is the genealogy of Joseph, and therefore, hmm. in point to if he's born a virgin, Joseph is not related to him. Now, some Christians say, well, Luke is the genealogy of Mary. It's not in the text at all. That doesn't exist. There. They hmm. just have to come up with that. In fact, if you look at Luke one twenty-seven. it's jo- Joseph that was in the line of David, not Mary. So, therefore, these genealogies are completely but, irrelevant but Luke, once you insert Luke the doesn't have birth. Luke doesn't have, uh, doesn't have Solomon. So, so, we're at a loss there. We can't use Luke. Uh, it's Matthew that has David and Solomon in, in, the, right. in the genealogy. You know, Matthew's genealogy is also... 
quite impossible. There's too few generations. If you look from Jaconia, Jaconia was, uh, let's say, died in the year about 612 BCE. So from 612 BCE, Matthew assigned 13 generations to Jesus. So it's a matter over 600 years to have 13 generations. That would mean the average generation of person was having a baby around the age of 50 years old. So there's so many names that are stripped out, even hmm. if we were to concede, because obviously the last segment are unknown names, uh, it would be impossible to cover 600 years and 13 generations, particularly in a time when the average human lifespan was maybe 25, 26 years old. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible on, on many different levels. Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 is at least more extensive with 56 generations. So in a sense, it's more plausible. Matthew's genealogy is impossible. Well, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Jaconia, or, or Kaniah, as some people say, and that, that takes us back to Jeremiah chapter 22, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, Jeremiah 20, Jaconia only reigned for three months. He was referred to as the Jewish Caligula. He was so wow. evil, so wicked, that Jeremiah cursed him that none of his seed would ever sit on the throne of David. In fact, the person who will rule after him is Yehoyachim, instead of Yehoyachin. It's an M at the end instead of an, an N or a mm -hmm. M. That's his uncle, it's his father's brother, in order to bypass the curse. And then it continues down there to Tzitzkiyahu. So therefore, the curse creates a, a staggering problem because if, in fact, this is the genealogy of Jesus, then he's not eligible to be the Messiah because of the curse on Jaconia. Now, I, I debated a Christian once, and I, I really respect and and uh, I raised this issue, and he responded, and Josh McDowell does the same thing in his book, Evidence in Man's Verdict, and says, aha, that's the reason why you need a virgin birth, because if Jesus <laughs> wasn't born of a virgin, he would have been a descendant of Jaconi, and therefore ineligible to be the Messiah. But if, in fact, that's the case, then why introduce the genealogy altogether? That's not the genealogy of Jesus. It's, it goes back and forth, but uh, the verse that you're referring to is uh, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for none, none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. But I've had a lot of people say to me, what about King Zerubbabel? Ah, the, the answer is that there is no such thing as King Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel who is the, one of two leaders, Ubaba and Yeshua ben Yehotzadak, are the two leaders that restore the second temple. And the answer is Ubaba wasn't a king. He was a governor. So what you're saying is he, he never sat on the throne of David? No, he couldn't. And therefore, he's only a governor. He, the word kings Ubaba doesn't exist, never happened in history. There were no kings during the second temple period. So he's a direct descendant of... Uh, can I have a thing, but he never actually sits. So we actually see it employed. No child of Yehoiachin ever sits on the throne. It's his uncle, uh, it's his nephew, but never in descendant. And, and Zerubbabel, which literally that name means seated in Babylon, is not a king. He's a governor. I, I should mention the fact there is a Jewish tradition. Christians, strangely, although Christians uh, don't believe in the, in the Talmud and oral tradition, uh, they do appeal to an oral tradition on this thing. It really gets very interesting. So what happens, strangely, is that ordinarily Christians speak of the Talmud derisively, but when it, when, if it will save them, rescue them from a problem, from a conundrum, they'll appeal to it in a second. So sophisticated Christians will say, aha, but the Talmud says he was forgiven. 
that creates two monumental problems for them if they want to appeal to the Talmud. Uh, the first problem is unbelievable, and that is, therefore, Jaconia was able to atone for his sin without shedding blood. He was able to atone for his sin using Christian terms by his own works, by something that he had done. And number two is, we have here, it's the, the Bible says one thing, scripturally, Jaconia is never restored. None of his children ever sit on the throne of David. So that means that if you have an oral tradition that even that contradicts what the plain text says, these Christians will say, we'll go with the oral tradition, even though it, it contradicts completely what the written text says, which, and, and of is, course, so which is astounding. And this is the case in uh, Manasseh as well, the, the son of uh, Hezekiah, who was so incredibly evil. He was, uh, he was exiled, and in exile, he repented uh, without, a, without being at the temple, without sacrifice. He, he, he repented and was restored and returned to the land. I mean, there, too, is equally a problem for them, but this is what, they, what, what the Talmud is claiming happened for uh, Yechaniah. And this is what you're saying some Christians will lean on in order to get around the oh, yeah. problem of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. But then once you do that, again, you are building a case against the virgin birth. So it goes around and around. Well, the virgin birth is a latecomer to Christianity. The earliest Christians uh, didn't believe in a virgin birth. In the book of Mark, the earliest of the four Gospels were introduced to Jesus as an adult. There's no mention of Jesus being where he's born, there's no mention of, I mean, Mark didn't simply forget to mention that part, but the letters of Paul are much older than the Gospels, First Thessalonians being the oldest, uh, from base probably about 49. I mean, Paul didn't just forget to mention that part. It's all, as, as a conversion of Jews to Christianity, and then may not have been called that, but we'll just call Christianity, uh, will, will basically end, and then it's almost all Gentiles. They're going to introduce ideas that are very well known in the past in the world, such as the virgin birth. And that's why we only find it in Matthew and Luke. In fact, the notion that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is only mentioned by Matthew and Luke. Very different descriptions of uh, a nativity uh, narrative, mm-hmm. but they both are going to have him born in, in, in a virgin. John is so late that his birth really is relatively unimportant because John's prologue, John 1 through 18, is now going to have Jesus presenting Jesus as never before, as basically pre-existent. So, he, so John attempts to bypass these, uh, uh, the, these problems that, that appear in the genealogy. It's interesting, though, because as uh, Tovia says, it's clearly a latecomer, uh, or, or so it would appear, because Paul, who was written vastly before, uh, uh, decades before the, the Gospels, Paul says that, uh, that Jesus is a, um, a descendant of David according to the flesh. And so he he has no problem with that. It's not an, and and it's strange, Tobia, that uh, what you have is the the genealogies genealogies, and in both uh, gospels that have some kind of genealogy to to uh, tie together what what Paul has claimed, also then seem to want to negate that by adding the virgin birth story. It's it's a fascinating problem to try and solve. And uh, for many many Christians, when I when I mention things like this, they've never ever they never knew there was a problem there. They've never given it a second thought. They didn't realize that they had to play mastermind to make it all work. And uh, once you solve one problem, you've got another that you have to deal with. The Torah of God is perfect. If you take any perfect system and remove one piece, it has a ripple effect, which means you start spinning in circles. The virgin birth is an embellishment. I mean, you take Mark, which is the least embellished of the Gospels, not only do you have no mention of, of birth, as I mentioned, you're first introduced to Jesus 
at his baptism, where Jesus finds out he's the Son of God at that moment. Remember, there's a different heavenly voice in, in Mark and Matthew. In Mark, the voice says, you are my son, and on this day I begot you. So the voice is speaking to Jesus, informing him of his new status at the baptism. Look carefully at Matthew. It's different, because as you go later in time, Jesus becomes a uh, becomes the son of God at an earlier stage in his career. In Matthew, the, the voice says something that's slightly different. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Which means the voice now is not addressing Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus knows he's the son of God because he was born of a virgin. So who, this is my son, Jesus is now third person. He's informing the audience that is there around. John is so late, that, and meaning and has Jesus as pre-existent that John, there is no baptism. Jesus is never baptized. That's fascinating. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I reckon we have. That's a lot to to chew on, and uh, we, I think we better leave that with the listeners. But it certainly gives you an insight, some clarification, coming back to uh, the latter chapters of Ezekiel as to uh, wh- who who this may be, or, or maybe more precisely, who it isn't. So uh, there's there's something for the listeners.